Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? What's going on, Tim? I just saw you last night for Brandon Cronenberg's latest movie. Anything uh, interesting been going on with your life since? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we caught Infinity Pool, which was great because I feel like I mean, the exciting thing about that for me is like there wasn't it didn't feel like there was a delay from an American release or something. I worry about movies with that being difficult to get to at first or that we'd have to wait for it to be on, uh, you know, a streaming platform or something. But I think it opened all North America on Friday. So whether Cronenberg is, you know, really holding fast his Canadian identity and, and insisting on that kind of thing or not, I'm not sure. But uh, it was exciting to see that there's a big break between Antiviral and Possessor, his first two movies, and Possessor did a lot better than the than the first one. So I, I think he's getting some momentum. So that's pretty exciting. It is. And it just kind of felt like a continuation of what his father was doing with uh, Crimes of the Future, which was a 2022 mm-hmm. release. And uh, I thought it was definitely the most polished of, Cron- of Brandon Cronenberg's films and maybe even more polished than any of his fathers in terms of just the very clean cut aesthetic of the movie which i i went to bed thinking about last night yeah it's interesting like the kind of anonymous setting to not spoil it too much did have a lot in common with crimes of the future um kind of dusty old bureaucratic buildings things like that was pretty interesting to see and i mean i i it's it just makes me really happy that we had you know crimes of the future last year and infinity pool this year if we have a cronenberg every year because they're just trading off one year to the next uh, i mean I'll, I'll be i'll be satisfied that's some great canadian content right there yeah dream come true double cronenberg yeah. and <laughs> but uh this one seems to be doing well as well so i hope he does get some momentum uh i think Possessor's probably still my favorite of the three but i have to go back and revisit that i i picked up the blu-ray Pretty much as soon as it was available, and then I think probably chickened out of rewatching Possessor too quickly. <laughs> well, but uh, the the star from that Andrea Gainsborough was one of the surprise Oscar noms uh, this time, so it'd be good to get a get a point of reference on her again. I'm not actually sure. Is her movie from Leslie something like that? I didn't even see cons- the nominations yet, to be honest with you. There were a lot of um, conspiracy theories, I'd say about um about her getting that nomination because it was basically a week before the nominations came out when a bunch of like a-list celebrities just started talking up Gainsborough and talking about why she deserved a nomination when no one had really been talking about the movie before so a pretty pretty adroit uh grassroots marketing campaign from people like ed norton um coming out in favor of her uh but in general i mean i think the nominations were pretty good i did i felt very honored to have uh, one of my siblings and one of my friends reach out to me after the nominations came out to decry the fact that Nope got zero nominations, not even a screenplay or a cinematography or something. I mean, even dating back to the summer, I feel like we were very high on that movie. And still, I, for me, I still am. And a lot of people didn't see it that way. A lot of people didn't see it as the maybe critical success that it was, the cultural success that it should have been. I feel like it, unfortunately, on our last episode, when we sort of reviewed some movies from the year as a whole, we talked about Northman and how 
that kind of faded into your memory in 2022 a little bit easier. And I feel like that may be where it landed with Nope for some people. So like that was a summer movie and then we moved on and it wasn't really top of mind. Right. The the inverse of that is that Everything Everywhere All at Once, I think, is 11 times nominated, um, which is which is fantastic. Uh, three three of the female cast and uh, and our boy Kihu Kwan all up for Oscars. So that that'll be exciting if they have a if they have a fun sweep across that movie. But we'll find out next month or this month. It's yeah. February. Hey, uh, everyone, <laughs> it's February. We're doing a new director. We're talking about M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> right. And I guess we can kind of branch from one topic to the next by discussing the hype train because I feel like that's a huge part of what The Sixth Sense is, and that's our movie for the week. It's shocking to me that The Sixth Sense is so early in his career because it's so fully formed, right? It doesn't it doesn't feel like... or It feels like there should be some long legacy of films before it that touch on these ideas and you can see him establishing things the way that it works with so many other filmmakers. And this is just such a talented and capable product, um, you know, from 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 toe to tip. Yeah, very surprising. Such an early entry into his filmography. I do think that the butt of the joke that he's usually a part of is that he peaked so early. So mm-hmm. looking back at his filmography, yeah, it's a little front loaded. There was a couple movies he made before this, one called Praying with Anger from 1992 and one called Wide Awake from 1998. Uh, I've never met anybody who's mentioned either of these movies to me, so I can't say anything about those. But coming into 1999, The Sixth Sense, I don't know how much you remember about this as a cultural phenomena, but it was something It's something that I remember because it was one of like the six DVDs my parents bought. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and for a while, it would have been the only horror or classified as a horror genre movie in my household. And I remember, mm-hmm. like, kind of knowing that there was some big deal about this movie. And my cousins and I remember one night, we kind of were like, wait till the parents go to bed. We'll break out this movie. We'll watch it. It'll, yeah. No one will be the wiser. And uh, mm-hmm. little did we know that there was such a huge twist and that it was almost impossible to contain once you, like, saw the movie you wanted to talk about it with everybody you had to talk about it and i was one of the very privileged few to get to see this movie with genuinely no clue of the plot twist coming yeah and that's the thing right like it became i think this is like a cultural touch point in terms of the idea of a movie twist certainly you got like star wars uh you know i am your father stuff like that but this felt different especially because you can, it's kind of baked into the way this movie is made is made to be rewatched because there are all these little hints the whole time and the movie itself addresses some of those by doing flashbacks and cutting back to earlier footage but some of them it doesn't they're things that are just left for you so i mean before we go any further we should say i don't know what to tell you like spoilers abound in this episode we're going to talk about the fact that uh, bruce willis was dead the whole time which is a sentence you've heard before right it's in it's a cultural reference i i didn't watch this one as a kid i actually didn't watch this movie till i was an adult and it was primarily because there are these movies that i think exist so much larger than themselves that you feel like or at least i have felt like why do i even need to see that right like you know citizen kane rosebud stuff like that i think these things they they have such a larger reputation that you kind of feel like i've already seen that movie right um so when 
you know, maybe sometime in university era, I watched this movie. I was blown away by how effective the movie it is and how um, emotional and compelling it is and that it's not it's not just the twist. And I think that's another argument against some of M. Night Shyamalan's lesser uh, less successful movies is that they are just a twist and there's not much else that they have going for them. But no, this is and and to, to speak on it being front loaded, that is kind of the the bummer right now in terms of his career is that Sixth Sense is kind of inarguably his best movie. And there are other movies, like there are a bunch of movies in this mid-range that he's made where it depends on who you are, whether you like them or not. And then there are a couple, you know, outright stinkers, uh, one of which we, we included on our uh, our vote. And we had a couple uh, a couple of our cheeky listeners vote for The, uh, the Last Airbender, which... Maybe unfair of me to call it a stinker because I have not watched it, but it's got a pretty pretty strong reputation. Yeah, we would have been willing if we got the votes. We'll put it that yeah. way. Um, but maybe we should start from the top, eh? With our, mm-hmm. you know, our yeah, just I mean, just in case you plot, yeah. budget, tagline, <laughs> yeah, with all our paperwork. And yeah, so if you're like me and you've never bothered to watch this movie because you know the twist, you think you understand it, let me just walk you through the basics. In The Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis plays Malcolm Crowe, a child psychiatrist struggling to connect with his wife in the fallout of a traumatic home invasion. Uh, He attempts to help Cole Sear, a young boy haunted by visions of dead people. It was released August 6th, 1999, was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and stars Haley Joel Osment, Bruce Willis, and Tony Collette. Uh, Canadians can watch it on Disney+, Plus, like basically everything else. Wow. Disney+, Plus again. Yeah. But, I mean, check this out. Uh, $40 million budget. That nice, nice sweet mid-range. A little, little bit higher than maybe even the mid-range we talked about now. $672 million return. Ooh. Right? Huge. And I'd, I'd say, like, you know, based on the fact that he, he um, you know, his two earlier movies really didn't ping on the radar, you'd wonder how... He, he got this budget, how he got to direct it, things like that. And I think you make a good point in these notes, Tay. You talked about him being, he must be a great salesman. And un- undeniably, be, right? in terms of like cinematic script structure and the like, the, the, the draws and the things that'll hook you, undeniably phenomenal script. This is the kind of thing that you can see an executive reading and knowing that they have to have it. Yeah, and that was kind of like the stories that I was gathering. I watched all the behind the scenes stuff a lot of the cast and crew interviews and everybody kind of seemed to point back to the, when this was in the script stage, everyone knew what a good script this was. And to the mm-hmm. point where uh, apparently the studio literally told Shyamalan that this was going to be one of their big movies of the year. And they don't, mm-hmm. from my understanding of the industry, they don't usually tell a director that. Um, yeah. Well, so according to some my, my research, you had David Vogel, the then president of production at Walt Disney Studios. He read the script and he loved it. He did not obtain corporate approval and bought the rights uh, for $3 million, including the stipulation that Shyamalan would direct the film. Uh, Disney then fired Vogel um, and uh, Disney sold the production rights to Spyglass, retaining 12.5% of the box office takings and the distribution rights. Um, so not a bad deal for everyone involved, with the exception of Vogel, who was kind of proven right in the long run. In the long run, even if he didn't follow the 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 right process. Yeah, obviously someone was pretty excitable to get their hands on the script and to buy it <laughs> yeah. for Disney, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, I think a lot of that comes from 
the just the inherent cinematic value of a script like this Mm -hmm. look at the tagline we have here i see dead people yeah i mean right away so compelling so interested to know what this movie is going to be about you attach Mm -hmm. major star quality like bruce willis and i I believe Haley joel osmond was already kind of seen as a big child star but i'm not sure on that actually um I'm not 100% clear on his career. Like, this is obviously his breakout moment. I'm not sure how much he did before this and if any of it registers so much. Because my understanding is, like, he still, like, he did a tape, you know, among many others. And he was not the first person offered the role. Yeah, and that was kind of surprising, too, knowing how this all pans out. That M. Night Shyamalan thought that Haley Joel Osment was a bit too, like, soft and too emotional to play this kind of character. But I think... Based on, once again, hearing all the cast interviews, the mature nature of Haley Joel at this point uh, as a child star was so interesting and so necessary to this character in the role that he was an automatic choice by the time, like, the meet and greets happened. You know, he Mm -hmm. secured himself this position just based on how he was able to interact with the people around him seemingly like yeah, my, way ahead of his years in terms of being a professional yeah the research showed that like uh Shyamalan at first wasn't uh really taken by Haley Joel Osment's sort of fragile um take on this character and he was looking for something like a more haunted creepy boy and whether whether through reflection or consideration or or working with his creative team and the producers kind of came around to the idea that um Osment's take is a lot more palpable and creates a completely different type of movie than say you're Donnie Darko where you're like, get me a pale kid who's going to creep people out. (laughs) Um, Let's go, let's go in the other direction down this sort of spectrum of troubled child. And, you know, you basically, you have this kid who is half the time on the verge of tears and struggling to deal with things that adults can't deal with really powerful stuff. Yeah, he really does add another layer to this movie that probably wouldn't be there without his kind of performance or, or, and even his the magnitude of his performance. Uh, one of the surprising things about how this movie was so successful is the fact that it defines itself as partially a horror film. Even if you want to say like a part, only a portion of the movie is horror, the fact that it did so well at the domestic box office speaks volumes about what else the movie was able to offer general audiences. And uh, Shyamalan in one of these interviews was saying that they immediately realized that they were attracting two very distinct demographics, young boys and older women who were looking for the melodrama Mm -hmm. and young boys looking for the scares. Um, And so he said, this is love and fear both working simultaneously, um, which is a beautiful thing. Um, Because once again, just not a lot of scripts operate at at this multidimensional level where you can attract both these very seemingly disparate uh, demographics and that's the thing right like this this movie really in terms of horror has its cake and eats it too yes by getting getting to have this melodramatic stuff where you know the crux of the movie is that communication is important and um being able to communicate is a gift and can heal relationships like if that's your core nugget of a ghost story that certainly it's it's kind of a gothic idea. Yeah. And yep. I, I'd say at the time it, it wasn't what horror movies looked like. Like we've talked about other horror movies from the nineties and they had to be high energy, they had to be subversive, they had to be meta. 
and this is this is completely like this is way more of a classic Hollywood take, um, hard on its sleeve, and I think that's part of the charm of of M Night Shyamalan. I I watch this movie, and he watches other movies to to d- varying degrees of success. And you see someone who loves movies. Yes, he. Right? I don't know what it is. He just oozes the cinematic quality in his craftsmanship of his scripts, mm-hmm. of the way he directs his actors. Uh, whether misguided or not in that in that regard um and even and i want to say especially in his cinematography he just understands Mm -hmm. the rules and how to break them so effectively i don't think many filmmakers kind of ride that line so consistently where he's like i am breaking rules of established cinematic order and Mm -hmm. i'm doing so with pleasure and with glee and and with skill and with skill yeah i i think he i think he he He's in the sphere of Spielberg in terms of in terms of his ability to compose a shot, things like that. And he's obviously a student of Spielberg's films. Uh, there's a lot of like Spielberg length oneers, one of which we're going to talk about, which are not again, they're our favorite type. They're not showy one oneers. They're not a one shot to make you think about where the camera is and how they got the dolly track to do that and when they hand it off from one guy to another. Um, it's a wonder that enhances the scene and supports the emotion that's on the scene or what the actors are trying to do and makes a, makes a more compelling experience for the audience. All of these things that I, I, I think like you get the impression this guy watched everything Spielberg was making while he was coming up. It really like does feel that did, way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And he is in that generation of like the prime age to experience all of Sp- the magic of Spielberg's movies, right? He grew mm-hmm. up at like kind of the perfect time to enjoy that ride and kind of take it into him his own like of inspired filmmaking. And mm-hmm. a lot of that does come through with the way like we've already talked about his he directed his actors and brought like this inherent familial value to the relationships, even between like the like the characters who aren't family. They really like yeah. create this familial bond almost immediately. And that's the way the movie kind of operates as this dysfunctional or disjointed family even though bruce willis isn't even alive in in the film which is pretty interesting uh in itself and um i mean speaking of willis i'd love to i want to go on a little just like i'm gonna keep this tangent as short as possible but i only found this out in the research of this movie is why willis is in this movie it's kind of fascinating um so he was cast in the role of malcolm crow as part of a deal to compensate the studio for the and this is wikipedia's term implosion a broadway brawler the year before so tay you ever heard of broadway brawler no actually me me neither so this movie never came out um which i mean this is one of the funnier oh man where was it oh one of the funnier things i've ever seen on wikipedia where they talk about how this movie failed and they say it is extremely unusual for such a large budget production to simply end without a finished product so willis was starring and co-producing this uh romantic comedy and over the course of its production they spent about half the 40 million dollar budget um and got almost nothing done uh reading between the lines it sounds like willis was butting heads with basically everybody on the production so they kind of held him responsible for it in the end um so what do they do so the implosion of the production was largely attributed to willis's actions and behavior 
um, leaving in a, him in a difficult position with the Walt Disney Company. He was facing a $17.5 million lawsuit. So to offset uh, this loss, uh, they made a deal with Willis to take a three-picture deal with Disney at a greatly reduced salary. First movie was Armageddon. He took a $3 million salary instead of his $20 million asking price. The second movie was The Sixth Sense, and the third was Disney's The Kid, uh, all of which together uh, grossed $1.3 billion worldwide. Wow. <laughs> I've never seen The Kid, but uh, Armageddon kid. and Sixth Sense are, I would call them genuinely inspired performances by Bruce Will. so give him a bit of props mm-hmm. for that because he stepped in to compensate a studio for the in by doing well, these I mean, roles. That's, that's the main thing. None of them feel phoned in. Again, no. I haven't seen The Kid either, but... I mean, you're working with Michael Bay or with M. Night Shyamalan, someone you, he may not have heard of before. Um, and still, you know, he's doing his Bruce Willis trying, which I think is to varying degrees of success. But I think it works very well in this. I think it's kind of, it's kind of odd to cast him as, as a award-winning child psychiatrist. But he's, he's got undeniably great chemistry with Haley Joel Osment, which is kind of all that matters. Yeah, I, I think that that is really the only only thing you needed to make sure you had in terms of like designing the layout of this movie because so much hinges on that the scene we're going to talk about is a different relationship but it shouldn't mm-hmm. be understated how well the central relationship of the film works um, and it's what really does the heavy lifting in terms of uh, just the acting performances and the script writing you know everything is fleshed out by this relationship between Haley Joel Osment and Bruce Willis's characters in quite a beautiful way um they both have their own side relationships that they work on and then the moments together are where the movie kind of is happening mm-hmm. well i i got a, a bit of a well what's probably a pedantic question but i think it's always a fun exercise is who's the main character of this movie is it cole or is it malcolm i think it, has it begins to be cole. and ends with malcolm yes uh, right like they really bookend it as being the arc of him communicating with his wife and giving her giving her a chance to mourn properly and him getting his you know eternal rest for lack of a a a more spiritual word so i guess to me bruce willis just isn't the protagonist only objectively speaking because of what we find out with the conclusion of the film and the twist that he's been dead the whole time so mm-hmm. i think we have to assume then that cole has been the one push like the story is pushed by cole or else Bruce Willis wouldn't even be part of the story. I'd, I'd say you're right that Cole is sort of the base of the cause and effect of this, because they're also, they're, they suggest that these spirits seek Cole out. That's right. Right? Because like Nisha Barton's what I'm trying to say isn't tied to the building that him and Tony Collette live in. So they're seeking him out. So it is, yeah, I guess it is really, it's something he's doing for him, but along the way, it's just kind of like the fortune that this ghost that's haunting Cole also happens to be a very capable child psychiatrist whose own arc is also like the impetus for Bruce Willis's character for Malcolm Crow is that Vincent died, not that Malcolm Crow died, right? Correct. Vincent being played very well by Donnie Wahlberg, a, a phenomenal short performance. Yeah. <sighs> Do you know why you're afraid when you're alone? I do. I do. (laughs) As far as these bit part kind of characters go, 
one of the most memorable like ever for me was this small part by Donnie Wahlberg who plays the character of Vincent and it's mm-hmm. only in this opening five minutes of the movie I want to say maybe a bit more into it but it's a very lasting performance that you don't understand everything the first time you see it but as the movie progresses and then obviously after you've seen the movie you understand so much more about the context of what his performance is trying to do and trying to yeah, like, well, it's, perform it's to spoke- the audience. Yeah, he's showing a potential sad ending for Cole. Exactly. Right? Cuz what, yeah. what yeah, what what Malcolm figures out in reviewing old tapes from sessions with Vincent is that he was he was hearing voices as well and understanding that that's something that Cole's going through. And you kind of have these these two potential arcs like if you really if you look at it agnostic from the movie script, it's basically just Cole becoming a a medium right like basically yeah that you'd see in another movie just saying like hey i can connect you with with you know the 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 unrested dead and and let you know what they what message they need to pass on um or it can torment him until he he has a mental break or succumbs to drug use or whatever whatever you sort of want to assume of vincent and a lot of Vincent's trauma comes from the misdiagnosis from Malcolm. You told me I was having trouble coping with my parents' divorce. <laughs> you were wrong. You were wrong. <laughs> now look at me! I don't want to be afraid no more. Just give me a minute to say I waited 10 years for you. I'm not giving you nothing! Which is his character... Mm-hmm. Not flaw. I don't want to say that about a psychiatrist, but it's like his character's crutch that he, yeah, the burden his, that he carries. Sort of with his him. his core impetus. This the, yeah. the thing that he has to write, um, and he does that kind of. You know, that's kind of seems first and foremost. But then the other thing before he can truly move on is he has to talk to his wife, and I think a, a very a very touching um, choice that Shyamalan makes in terms of the script is that Cole doesn't go speak to crow's wife on his behalf yeah it's really well done i got an idea how you can talk to your wife wait till she's asleep then she'll listen to you and she won't even know it they kind of break their own rules and for the best by being like cole's like you know what i think you should try to talk to her while she's asleep because then she'll then she'll hear whatever you want to say um which, again, like, the rest of the movie, I think, sets up this structure in which Cole would be the one, just like when he goes to Misha Barton's family and solves that much more grisly situation and provides justice for a, a essentially murdered little girl. You were keeping her sick. Um, he doesn't do the same and go to uh, Malcolm Crow's wife. He just tells him how he can talk to her. Yeah, which I think is a beautiful sentiment, especially in that moment where Cole's really a different character than we've seen in the rest of the movie in that scene where him and Malcolm have their final words. And it's when, very wise. It, exactly. That, that's what I was going to say. It's just like the the advice that he passes on to Malcolm is so mature and wise mm-hmm. beyond his years. And it's like a very transformative moment. And I want to talk about that more when we get to our scene as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I do want to come back to this point before we leave kind of the general notes on the movie um, about mm-hmm. like what this movie did as far as the plot twist and what this meant for people, because yeah, um, it's there's so much more to his this movie than I would 
and the fair comparable is the rest of Shyamalan's filmography uh, because mm -hmm. of how impactful this twist is on the rest of the script and not simply the reason why you go to the theater is to see the rug get pulled out from under you. Um, yeah. What this movie did was created a, a scenario where audiences felt compelled to go back and rewatch the film. I remember this being a very common mantra. You have to go back so you can see all the things, even though there's a replay or a recap at the end, kind of cutting through some of Malcolm's like most confusing moments of being a ghost, mm -hmm. I guess that we've witnessed. And there's still more that the film kind of promotes for you to go back and see. I remember it being a, kind of something that everyone knew about the movie is that there's something about the color red. You have to go watch all the scenes yeah. with the color red in it and tell, and like figure out what the mystery is there. And the mystery being like, I guess they use vibrant red only to indicate things that have been tainted by the ghost world or by the spirit world. Yeah. Sort of crossover stuff. Yeah. So that, and then, I that's kind of like, cool. Yeah, you've got stuff like, um, you know, Willis's character is only ever wearing clothes that he wore on that last night. Right, exactly. And they, yeah. they do, they do, they get a lot done with a three piece suit, an overcoat, and like a crew neck sweater. So, yeah. like, I think if you're not looking for it again, you're like, yeah, this is just kind of like his look. This is his vibe. You're not like that guy is trapped in the clothes he's been wearing the whole time. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't need to overstate this point. I just want it to be known that, like, a twist that has this much connection or connective tissue to the rest of the plot points of the movie is rare mm -hmm. it, it's rare that you can have a twist at the end of the movie and it actually affects almost every scene from the movie in a way that's not overbearing or that doesn't treat you like you're a dumb audience member because mm -hmm. it obfuscated something from you or like it hid something fundamental from you the whole movie is laid out for you in fact when cole's it, during cole's reveal of i see dead people the initial one he lays everything out and if you actually put what he's saying into context in that moment you could pretty much figure out the movie from that point on i see dead people in your dreams while you're awake dead people like in graves and coffins. Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. Yeah, especially when he says, like, sometimes they don't know they're dead. It, it, that's the line, right? exactly. That's exactly the line. And I guess, like, in, in one of the production notes I read, like, the, the studio was really worried about that scene just giving it away. Because I think, like, they say, I see, he says, I see dead people. And then you get, like, a pretty pregnant reaction shot from Bruce Willis. Mm -hmm. And they were like, is that too much? And, like, they did with test audiences, and it played super well. See, it's yeah, to so me, graceful. that's not it's such the moment. a balancing act. That, yeah, yeah, that look from Bruce Willis doesn't give away nearly as much as Haley Joel's line of mm -hmm. they don't know they're dead. Um, and if you just actually listen to what he's saying and put it into the context of what you're watching then you would kind of figure it out but our minds blissfully ignore this information willingly ignore this information and it's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing to see a script do to you this is this is what i say when this movie when i say this movie has cinematic value it as a script it operates so well as a story that you can go back and say like i was so into the emotional ride of the film that i miss that part because mm -hmm. i was so in line with the characters i missed it just like they did 
And those are those are great moments to witness in movies. The power of that scene is, yeah, I don't think you're sitting there doing logistic math yeah, on, on what not. he's saying. You're getting his confession because it's been half the movie where you're just like, what is going on with this kid? And then you finally get to know. So that that's your first priority as an audience member is to just listen what Cole is saying. Um, no, and yeah, when you say it has when you say it has cinematic value, uh, I completely agree. And like, I think it is again. We talk about it all the time, but these very best of movies where they can only work as a movie. And the easiest comparison is always like, could it be done on stage? And this movie is so tied to Cole's perspective, and that's the only way the twist works, right? Is if you accept that oh, well, he can hear what Bruce Willis is saying because Bruce Willis is alive, obviously. Even though, you just, you know, you have that fade-out from the first scene where he had been shot by Vincent and they never really give you any sort of other details and then his wife won't talk to him. You know, death and mourning is a form of estrangement. It's all locked specifically into the cinematic art form and wouldn't it, it is doable maybe as a stage play, but it would not be nearly as effective. Um I think you could almost say that because of because uh, Shyamalan uses the camera. And I honestly think you can say that about a lot of his movies, almost all of them, Mm -hmm. that they just operate so much better as movies than they could possibly operate in any other form. Very rare Mm -hmm. thing, Um, but a beautiful thing. Uh, It's why we kind of wanted to resurrect this name of M. Night, because uh, I honestly think what he's offered to cinema is... Uh, he's far more deserving of praise than of the ridicule that he often gets. And he might have made some stinkers. Uh, I have not seen all of them, but there's definitely some that I don't even want to see. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's undeniable how good this script is. Um, It's undeniable that he has a certain talent as a director, and I think he just needs to have some time to, like, refocus on what he wants to say as a creative and kind of give like i think he just needs some perspective shifting and some time to kind of get out what he needs to get out next and hopefully yeah, and, knock and, at the cabin know, we, is a different step for him as as something he didn't write himself yeah no and and that's the thing right like we we talk about lots of filmmakers where they have they're not one success after another and at a certain point it's like yeah you can you can hope to be those but it's not realistic and I, I would take a checkered filmography if you get highs like this, just like we, we were speaking off mic recently about Danny Boyle and Danny Boyle has some phenomenal movies and he's a very exciting filmmaker who keeps taking chances just like M. Night Shyamalan. Sometimes he strikes out. It's just, it's how it is. And I appreciate that, you know, they operate in an industry and they have successes that are big enough that they do get to keep having chances to try something new and not just sort of coast. I think that Shyamalan is also one of those, like, one of the rare, maybe, like, under 10 filmmakers working right now who kind of gets to do what he wants to do. He Mm kind of will get any studio to give him the sub $100 million budget he's looking for. In most cases, I'd say, like, sub $60 million budgets that he needs. And he just executes, and they make money because people see the name. And he still probably rides the high that this movie gave his name. Yeah, it's kind of, it's undeniable, like just like an insane return at the box office. Uh, one of the most iconic movies of the 90s, one of the most well-known horror movies ever to, I'd say, general audiences. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, and, it's an achievement. And that's also something that I, I want to discuss more when we get in our scene, just like ability to kind of traverse genres so like with ease. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah. I mean, if you want, we can dive right in. I, uh, I'm, I'm big fan of the scene. And I'm ready to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Um, my scene summary is very short today. A, uh, we are doing one of the final scenes of the film, uh, an hour thirty-one into the movie to an hour thirty-six fifteen. Uh, and this is in the scene. Cole and his mother Lynn are halted in traffic due to a road accident ahead. Cole uses this time to tell his mother his secret. Uh, and that's the, as, about as simple of a recap as I can give for the scene, but there's so much to this that we can unpack. Absolutely. And I mean, it starts, I'd say, you know, we, we talked about some other scenes because we did want to get into some of Shyamalan's more ambitious cinematography choices. Him and, and cinematographer Tak Fujimoto, one of the most prolific cinematographers of the modern era. Um, he's You've definitely seen a movie that Tak Fujimoto is, has shot, even if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense. Yeah, he's crossed a lot um, of genres, a lot of filmmakers. Odds are you've seen something mm-hmm. he's made. Yeah. Uh, but And while this scene is largely, I think, more subdued in terms of cinematography, it does start with, as I mentioned before, I'd say a Spielberg-style oneer where you have a two-minute shot, just under two minutes, maybe a, a minute, 54 seconds, where you track up the street showing the length of uh, of the mm. sort of traffic jam that's caused by some sort of a collision. Jeez, I hope nobody got hurt. Um, lots of extras, lots of props. They set up, you know, half a street to do this shot and track down towards them. And you have um, Tony Collette uh, playing Lynn. Her, her lines are, are coming over top of the tracking as you approach the car. And then it holds on them in the car for the better part of that single shots runtime and again her uh uh, tony collette and this you know relatively inexperienced child actor at least in terms of this scale of a role have to hold like a minute and a half long conversation and make it seem natural and it like that alone for Haley joel osmond if you just want to take one little thing and be like this kid like they have to set up this shot they have all these moving parts and then he has to remember his lines he has to say them uh, he has to be patient in his reactions to what Tony Collette is doing. Just incredibly impressive work. And for a shot like this, the thing that often goes under the radar in terms of the sheer acting caliber is not just ability to remember and convey your lines. It's the ability to hit timing, to hit beats, and to remember your blocking. Uh, mm-hmm. In a scene like this where Tony Collette is literally in the foreground and Haley Joel Osment is in the background or I guess mid-ground, she is, it's very hard for her to operate naturally and not cover him or block him mm-hmm. in any way. And that's something that this whole shot rides on. Like if she makes a movement where she accidentally blocks him out for even a second, then the shot's over. And you don't have, you have to reset this whole take of the camera coming all the way up the street and you redo that. Odds are they had to do this shot many times yeah. to set up something so complex, but just to nail the timing for both these actors, so brilliant to nail that blocking, especially on Tony Collette's part. So brilliant. Yeah, and and I'd say in particular, like I really want to highlight, I'd say Haley Joel Osment's most mature quality as an actor is he's patient. Yes, um, I'd say with with children actors, they're waiting to say their next line, and at no no you know no argument against them. A lot of adult actors, if you watch the one that's not talking in a conversation you can tell they're waiting to say their next line. Being able to be patient is one thing. Being able to act as a listener is like among the rarest talents, I'd say, that common actors 
have or don't have. And there are times in this movie where he's working with Bruce Willis, and I think you can see that he's a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old who's waiting to say the next line that he knows in the, is in the script. They're far and few between, and I don't knock him too hard for that because, again, adult actors don't always get this. But this scene is is highly impressive. Um, that he's not he's not saying the lines as soon as Tony Collette is done saying her lines. He's thinking about what he's saying. He's reacting quasi naturally. It's it's highly impressive stuff. Yeah, the realism of of the delivery on both characters' parts is unbelievable. And I guess the reason why we ultimately picked this scene is because it's so emotionally resonant, and it's got some of the best. It has some of the best performances that you'll see in any movie. Um, I would put this as one of my more as one of the most emotional scenes I've ever seen because mm-hmm. I actually reacted pretty strongly this time around to it. Um, yeah. I don't remember maybe having the same emotional reaction before, but the dialogue and the delivery is, are so good. And yeah, uh, this is, this is the one that stuck with me from my first watch. There was obviously there, like there are, there's some more interesting scenes in terms of how they're shot and the choices that he's making. But I think very wisely, especially for his third film, he knew this one does not have to be flashy beyond this beginning where we sort of set the stage of the setting it's about these two people in a shot reverse shot. And when I choose to cut from one to the other is super important. And that's why, again, it's almost two minutes in. And then to underline a specific line is when you have the first shot that just goes straight to Colette. And it's her reacting to him saying, You know the accident up there? Yeah. Someone got hurt. They did? A lady. She died. Oh my god, but you can see her? Yes. Where is she? Standing next to my window. And it's a it's an awesome cut because you immediately want to see what's outside his window, but instead you get the shot to yeah. Lynn, the character, and mm-hmm. you are also in this moment of like what is actually outside his window? Or am I going to get to see this? Because then she kind of has that look, right? She she looks towards his window for a second, doesn't see anything, obviously. It's this, yeah, it's this second-to-second second building of little, little like, bubbles of tension. It's not... The scene is not going in a tense arc, up and up and up. It's this little... You know, he says... I'm ready to communicate with you now. Communicate? which is kind of an obtuse way to talk about what they're talking about. And I think that's a little bit of M. Night Shyamalan's dialogue. It's not always hypernatural, but this is very on the nose. Cause again, as, as I mentioned, like the core of this movie is like the need for communication in loving relationships and like whether that can cross the barrier between life and death, things like that. So I'm, I'm okay with it being, I'm ready to communicate with you. And to Shyamalan's credit, um lynn reacts by by i think she doubles down on that says saying like you want to communicate like i think she kind of addresses how formal it is i think that's the line maybe is not as consistent with the character of cole as that might be the confusing point but i i do think that this Mm -hmm. line is very much indicative of a child's perspective on such a scenario where it's like i know i have to have this conversation with my with my mother and it's a very adult thing to even take upon oneself at that age and mm-hmm. to like make it all the more like awkwardly formal they a, a child might 
react like that or say a line like that. Yeah. Like I'm ready to communicate with you now. Very robotic mm-hmm. and structured. And um, this is the this is kind of a point where I wanted to mention the cinematography as well. Um, there's a scene earlier in the movie that really defines this point even more so, and it's when. Malcolm and Anna are like when he's still alive at the beginning of the film and they're looking at his award and a lot of the mm-hmm. scene, the lot of the com- the majority of the conversation is held over a shot of their reflections in the award in the shiny award. It's another one or two minute one. Yeah. And it's a long take, but um, part of what they're doing and part of what the cinematography is doing a lot in this movie is obfuscating characters and pushing them into corners um, mm-hmm. In a very intelligent way, it the framing often makes characters feel very vulnerable because they're crammed tightly in a frame, or like part of them are being is being cut off by something in the foreground, and this happens a lot. Um, and then there's also scenes like this that I'm talking about, where it's like through a reflection, and literally like the whole image is obfuscated by the reflective surface of the award. Finally, someone is recognizing the sacrifices you've made, that you have put everything second, including me suggesting that his like work is creating this obfuscation to their relationship because that's what the award is for. Yeah. And so I, I went with this idea and I was watching the cinematography kind of over the course of the movie develop and Cole mm. is often like, he has things put in front of him. There's parts of the frame that are often covered. So he's only like in a small part of the frame and able to be active in a small part of the frame. And mm-hmm. in this moment where the camera comes all the way up the street and goes to like the two shot of them, when he says mm-hmm. he wants to communicate, Lynn's arm comes down and does not block him anymore. And yeah. it's like a very clear piece of direction, like almost too obvious, but it's not something I noticed till I really started paying attention to the cinematography. It's the, sim- it's the simple stuff that works, it's right? Little it's little like, things yeah, like that. You're not, you're not shooting them through the windshield. You're shooting each single from inside That's the right. car. That's right, yep. Yeah, there is, there is no blocking. There is, there's nothing like that. And I mean, you made a gr- you made a great point where, so you basically you have him say like she's outside my window, and then you have um, Lynn's reaction to that, and then when they reverse back to Cole, he's out of focus, and the woman is outside his window. She's got a bloodied head. She's wearing bike gear, and then it rack focuses forward to bring Cole into view as the woman walks away. And you made a great point. I love this here that you're saying it, it acts as a nice jump scare. But it also marks the moment that the movie departs from horror, at least for the scene, into melodrama. It's almost like we're done with scares for now. We're focusing on their relationship here, right? And even when he when he brings up grandma, you don't get the impression that grandma is going to be in the back seat with like, you know, flies buzzing around her or or you know, skin hanging off her bones. Yeah, you're kind of put at ease in that moment, and it. I think a lot of it has to do with that camera movement, like that focus pull to Cole. And a lot of it has to do with that kind of being like almost like a it's a dumbed down jump scare. It's like it cuts to this terrifying image. And for a moment, it's scary. But then the second that it like holds on the shot and the woman starts to kind of walk away, that that feeling of fear just weans away. And yeah. And and you can tell like Cole isn't afraid. Which exactly. again is, is a, a marked different from the rest of the movie that he's not haunted by these ghosts. He's like, I know she's there, you know, but I'm I'm focused on my mom right now. There's something more important going on here. Yeah, and we in this moment, and I guess through the last couple scenes, but specifically through this scene, we learn a lot about Cole's relationship with the dead and how it's 
already changed so much from the last conversation we saw with Malcolm. Uh, or I mm-hmm. guess I should say from the moment of this epiphany because you have the, the moment of the play where it's a completely different version of Cole than we've seen the rest of the film where he takes it upon himself to be the lead actor in the play. Um, mm-hmm. And everything seems to have changed in terms of his confidence and the way he's dealing with um, his ability to see the dead. And then this scene happens and we really understand, okay, so now not only is he able to put aside this woman who's behind him in the window, but he's also now having seemingly effective conversation with his dead grandmother. And mm-hmm. this is just another evolution in his in his character. And the fact that we don't see a noticeable time jump, it seems to happen very quickly that Cole is now, it's like the origin story of a medium as we kind of suggested yeah. earlier. Sort of accepting again, reframing this, is it a curse or is it a gift, mm-hmm. right? And not only, and you have this dual function over the course of this scene that he is repairing the relationship with his mother because her her arc in this movie is, I think, a very palpable arc. You know, you talked about how one of the key demographics in terms of this audience was mothers. And I mean, what's more terrifying than like, what is, I don't know what's happening to my child. It's yeah. not even like I know my child has cancer or is has a psychosis or something like that. It is my child has unexplained injuries. My child is odd. There are things happening in my home I don't understand. You know, he's seeing child psychologists or or you know, what if what if I'm to blame? Yeah. All the, like all this uncertainty that that really I'm not a parent yet. I can imagine the the nightmare that it would be. And, um, and so you have him communicating with her, solving that, and then the little silver lining is him, him um, providing some closure for her relationship with her own mother about her mother apparently being, her being worried about her mother being absent at like a key moment in her childhood, and then also wondering how her mother feels about her. Grandma's gone. You know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Oh, she stop. wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said, when you were little, you and her had a fight right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. She hid in the back so you wouldn't see. She said you were like an angel. It's it's all these things at once without any of it stacking, I think, too complexly upon one another. Yeah, because you kind of get to enjoy every moment for what it is in the scene. It's like, like, I think the patience is key, like you mentioned earlier with the acting and the patience of listening to the characters because it teaches us how we need to handle the scene as viewers, which is Mm -hmm. we listen like the characters are shown to be listening. Uh, I truly believe that is an effective strategy, and that's why scenes that cut from perspective to perspective during a two-sided con- or a two-way conversation are confusing as hell. You need to show listening as much as you need to show the dialogue in scenes like this. But you really get to see so much about Lynn's character unveiled in this scene too. Um, and I was going to mention kind of the same things that you said. Um, it seems like something was unresolved with her mother at the time of at the time of her mother's death. Or at the very least, this was something, and honestly, this is so not even relatable to me personally. I could just imagine 
someone of her mother's age in that demographic kind of being so stubborn to the point where they have a fight and she doesn't go to her daughter. She never lets her daughter know that she went to the dance recital. I could yeah. just imagine that character and that mm-hmm. being part of like my grandma's generation of way yeah. of dealing with stubbornness and all that. Right. So that, mo- that moment always really resonates. And I, I like how much the scene unveils about Cole, but also about Lynn and the depth of her mm-hmm. sadness towards this too. I mean, we'll take a moment to talk about how great Tony Collette is. Um, she always delivers, I'd say. And um, I love in this scene, though, you can see these versions of the same sort of action each time where it's her responding to what he's saying. And at first, you know, she has, um, he says, you know, the dead woman's right outside my car. And she says something to the effect of, give me a moment, let me think about this. Because it's just like panic. It's just there's something really wrong with my son. And like, I'm glad that he's, maybe I'm glad that he's communicating with me finally, but what I'm finding out is a nightmare of its own. And then Cole goes further and he brings up grandma and the bumblebee pendant. Grandma says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. What? And I think you kind of see her roll it back like, oh, this is a long-winded excuse for why he keeps taking my pendant. And a little bit of frustration. And and then a little bit like, it's not you can't use this as an excuse. This is not an okay excuse. I hope you're not using this excuse at school. There's a lot of complexity to her reactions. And then when he reveals something that only her grandma would know, right, that she's never talked to him about, you get this more transcendent response where she she starts to kin to the idea that there's something supernatural going on here and they're all versions of the same sort of motherly response to what her son's telling her but they all have their own nuance they all have their own direction i i think and this maybe this is the kind of thing that you pick up more on having watched the scene four or five times in a row but i i, I think it's a wonderfully nuanced performance no i agree all, all those beats that she hits i read them exactly the way you said them like individually from one another and they do reflect her character from the rest of the film you know how she has that that repeated line where she says look at my face what are you thinking mama you think i'm a freak look at my face i would never think that about you ever got it got it and she does that whole like it's very like New Jersey of her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh or, or Philly, they in, they're in Philadelphia. Right, right. Sorry. Very I pens- if she's I don't I don't I don't I'm not 100% sure what her accent's supposed to be, but like she's Australian, so I think it's a good accent. I agree. Um I've recently heard Colin Farrell say the hardest thing they can ask you to do is do an American accent. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz he doesn't he, you don't know what to do. And yeah. uh and uh she is like quite Australian and the fact that she can pull off all these different characters that I've seen in very Anglified films is pretty impressive mm-hmm. in its own right. But yeah, I think to me it came off like she was doing like something like Jersey Shore-ish, but I, maybe I'm just like, I was like looking into some of the early scenes too much. Yeah. I don't think it's Philadelphia. Like my only point of reference is um, Kate Winslet in mayor of Easttown, that TV show mm. where she did some Philly accent, but I, we're gonna both say, come out on the record here. We're not we're not experts on American accents, so no. She doesn't sound Australian. She may sound New Jerseyan or New Yorker or Philadelphian. Uh, hit us up in the comments. Uh, 
our 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 friends from south of the border and let us know please yeah i'm interested to know what the american consensus on this accent would be yeah um i wanted to just touch on one other thing you said there too because one of the things i found kind of funny and in the interviews that i was watching she had two very different hairstyles that were both very punk in their own way one of them was like short Mm. spikes everywhere yeah um and but yeah she had like a very punk look going on and she's sitting there talking like i i didn't know how to do like this whole maternal thing like uh, mm. she she was saying like i don't know how i even like got to that point emotionally and the fact that she didn't even like carry life experience into like the maternal role speaks volumes about like how well she was able to kind of visualize the motherly components of her character but she said mm. that it's just like she just imagined that Cole was someone like that she was incredibly close to that she would just simply do anything for. And that was like what she kept coming back to um, this like simple notion of like anything, anything for this character. And that was like how she became this motherly figure in the film, which I, I don't know, the whole process of that seems almost like backwards to me. But uh, I thought that was interesting because she was she's so different talking about the Sixth Sense in 1999 versus the way I've known her to talk now. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, no, very impressive for her to, to be able to pull that out because I think she clearly comes across as palpably maternal. He's so important to her. Um, he's so alien to her at the same time. It's such a such a fraught place for, for a mother to be like that. Yeah, which um, adds to I mean, that tension, a, that melodrama. Yeah. But it's a wonderful arc to the scene too, right? Like I love like just the choice in terms of the script. Again, I think a great choice where you have the answer before the question. That's really the sort of the conclusion of the scene is do I make you, do I make you proud? Um, and Cole, I like I love it. It adds such texture and like um, graspable limitations to his gift, where he says, "She said you came to the place where they buried her." asked her a question she said the answer is every day what did you ask (laughs) do do I make He's like, I can talk to grandma, but she didn't tell me what you asked. What did you ask? It's a wonderful thing that ties them both into this and creates a dialogue for them instead of just a story he tells her, whether or not like it's supernatural that he knows the details of the story. It's, it's, it's a, it's a step further than being like, grandma was at your dance recital and she said, you looked like an angel. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the way that the script is delivering that information to us to the reverse order of giving us what she what the response was before the question is mm-hmm. such a beautiful way of conveying something that is very simple but at the same time goes very deep into the character's history and into what they thought of their relationship with her like what she thought of her relationship with her mother and mm-hmm. there's a lot to unpack so i think simple and kind of giving the audience a second to process by giving it to you in reverse that adds to the emotional weight of it and also allows you to kind of explore that internally yeah i mean yeah that's the scene is just so powerful i think you know because it's it's really it's a culmination of two of the main characters arcs right it's cole's actualization as a medium he sort of in the previous sequence he 
goes and helps Misha Barton. And it's a completely different form, I think, of, of how you could break down what it is to be a medium where they're like solving murders and, and helping the, the, the unjust uh, or the, the unjustified dead, you know? And then it's like, here's the flip side to that. Here is this achingly empathetic and sincere side of it that you can provide just a little bit of closure with just a couple words. And it's, of course, like bringing him and his mom back together because he he couldn't tell her what was going on with him before. And he, he wasn't sure he could find a way to not make it sound like he was crazy or like he was going to be scared all the time. Um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful sequence and it feels so climactic. And then the next sequence is Bruce Willis finding out he was dead the whole time. And I love, like, I think that's also super smart to do one after the other. Cause like everyone's going to talk about the Bruce Willis thing, yeah. but the real heart of the movie is here. Yeah. And you can kind of wrap up this storyline before getting to like Bruce Willis, who's probably the more like sellable plot mm-hmm. line, um, to kind of conclude, but just this, in, the idea of the scene kind of bringing together the shattered family, like we talked about the Spielbergian influence earlier, and it doesn't get much more Spielbergian than the shattered family being brought back together from a yeah. supernatural kind of circumstance or influence. And, or alien force. and Or alien force. <laughs> and I think the scene does, does that so wonderfully with the script and the performances. And it's rare that we do a scene that just our top, focuses performance but i think that of all scenes we've discussed so far this one is maybe the most deserving of that conversation and Mm -hmm. it's a really special scene absolutely i'm glad we were able to talk about it that was it's powerful stuff i uh i I look forward to it every time i'd come back to the movie since then um but other than that some other stuff that we always look forward to in this movie uh we're gonna do some shout outs um mine was just a small thing obviously just Shyamalan being very self-aware I love the shot when you're at the kids play and it shows you a shot of all the parents in the audience and like 90% of them pull out these big bulky camcorders with like the bright red lights on them yeah and just a funny little joke about parents about filmmaking very iconic in that time of the 90s right that size of a camcorder like that the fact that I'm using the the term camcorder you know I I I like that it was fun yeah those were like the early 2000s like jvc minis those were like the big bulky mm-hmm. guys so uh it's very yeah. very funny like i laughed out loud when that happened and and just kind of i guess you're at a moment of reprieve in that point of the movie where you're kind of like relaxed a bit more yeah it's generally <laughs> a nice scene and it's it's nice when you can throw in a joke here or there and what is otherwise a, a very melodramatic and at times horrific movie you know what else what i thought tommy Tomasino sucked big time <laughs> Yeah, and so that was a that was a funny moment. I I really absorbed that one this time versus other viewings. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, mine also a pretty quick one, but it's like a, a scene of its own, um, and that's the cupboard door scene. It's something I wanted to discuss at greater length. Just his ability to kind of break the rules of cinematography, and this one literally is a is a oneer. It's a take that goes that is a couple maybe it's a minute and a half long ish. And it follows yeah. Lynn from from the kitchen into the laundry room and back into the kitchen. And it's when the cupboards are all opened up when she comes back in. And all it's, the drawers, yeah. It's a genuinely scary visual. And they pull it off so well because, you know, obviously they cut sound and they're, it's all ADR'd for that moment, like where someone's running back into that room and opening so all the yes. drawers and stuff. <laughs> um, and it's a, but it's beautiful. It's like, it's, uh, it seems like something 
that would be or conceived of by an early ambitious filmmaker and executed like, like a, a yeah low cost way to get get something like that across but executed like a pro right and yeah like the idea in its conception kind of like oh yeah it's a this is like a cool scare and it's like mm-hmm. all right it's cool but how can you make it emotionally resonant and actually influence the rest of the film and the characters and it actually does because it's like a moment that confuses the relationship further between lynn and cole and it creates like more tension there than there was before and i i really think it's a great step mm-hmm. um as a scene in itself it's just really cool shooting and really fun filmmaking all around yeah. well and and i think like you know the the shaky cam in that might maybe the first shaky or handheld cam in the movie yeah and i think it lines up with lynn's character right she's a little bit more unsettled she doesn't have a full control over what's going on and there are a couple things i meant to talk about this more but i'll touch on it briefly a couple things choices like that being made throughout the whole movie where anytime malcolm and cole are having a therapy session for lack of a better word it's all it's all very smooth and locked off and there's absolutely no score yeah that was a big point score Most of the score occurs um, in Lynn's sequences where she's sort of losing grasp of stuff and these horrible things are happening to her son and she doesn't know what's going on. Um, There are lots of like orchestra stings that occur like with jump scares, but there's never any score with Malcolm and Cole. And so often score is used to sort of give you a bit of a, a signpost as to how to feel, right? It usually enhances whatever the direction is. And I love that there's nothing there for Malcolm and Cole. They're not trying to say something is unsure or unsettling. They're also not trying to tell you this is fine. This is normal. They're leaving it blank. And even the scene we talked about very powerfully has no score. It just lets the actors do all the work. Yeah, I guess that's something we forgot to cover in our actual scene breakdown. But yeah, Yeah. very um, rare choice to not use score at all over an entire scene like this. And it obviously worked pretty well on both of us mm-hmm. you could have very easily seen some very like emotional strings coming in or like a nice little lovely familial piano thing um and i think it's it's a lot more powerful just to let uh tony collette and Haley joel osmond uh do the heavy lifting for that scene because they they pulled off without a hitch yeah and then i mean to uh to wrap up we we are we're going to talk about signs in the next episode as voted by you our listeners on instagram so thank you for that i uh i like signs i'm looking forward to checking it out hell yeah again um and with that we'll leave you with some recommendations i'm gonna go with mike flanagan's dr sleep from 2019 i think you know you can argue that sixth sense is in the same subject matter legacy as things like the shining um, obviously going in completely different directions. Um, but uh, Flanagan actually reminds me, Mike Flanagan has made a number of movies and a number of TV shows. He's more famous, I'd say, for the latter on Netflix. Uh, you may have seen things like Haunting of Hill House or Bly Manor or um, Midnight Mass. Uh, and his brand of horror aligns with this a lot because it's usually very emotionally motivated horror about loss about depression about how we deal with things in our lives like death and being haunted by memories and trauma and then adding a supernatural flair to it so i think there's a lot in common again he's usually more well known for those uh tv shows but in terms of recommending a movie i'm gonna go with dr sleep it is the sequel to the shining it was criminally underseen 
Um, I think it's a very capable movie. It's much scarier in a number of ways than I say The Sixth Sense is. But at its core, there is still a lot of like what a medium can do in terms of giving people closure and giving them rest. Um, it's kind of both. There are, there are, there are things in, in Dr. Sleep that make me feel kind of like that Tony Collette and HJO scene make me feel. And then there are some truly terrifying sequences, um, where Rebecca Ferguson, uh, does horrible things. Uh, but it's a great movie. I love it. Yeah. I was a little more like split on that one, but, uh, I liked it. I liked it just fine. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got? What are you recommending? Uh, so we talked a bit about Tak Fujimoto. I'm a, I'm just more of a fan of how many different kind of genres and styles of movie this guy has been able to transgress as a DOP, as a director of photography. Um, and so just to list a few off from the different decades he's done, covered movies, uh, he did uh, Terrence Malick's Badlands, he did Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he did Silence of the Lambs, he's done Ridley Scott's Gladiator, he did Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, all very dynamically different mm-hmm. films. Um, but the mm-hmm. one I want to mention is actually this kind of criminally underseen movie called Devil in a Blue Dress, which is mm-hmm. 1995, uh, directed by Carl Franklin, um, starring a very handsome young Denzel Washington uh, as a private detective. Uh, it's a like sun-drenched film noir in all the best ways, kind of using an African-American protagonist in a very unconventional uh, way um, that wasn't really being done at the time and this movie kind of broke new ground in that regard but more than anything I think this is just a really cool movie and there's not really anything quite like Devil in a Blue Dress so um, if you have not seen this or not heard of it I highly suggest checking it out it's really good Denzel performance and uh, I really like this movie as a private eye kind of film which are, is one of my cool. favorite genres overall I haven't seen it but I'm pretty sure it just got a Criterion release it did right? I think it was actually months. I, for some reason, I think it was one of the first 4Ks they did. Ooh. Well, there you go. Let's see if I can track that down. But uh, yeah, that's it for our episode on Sixth Sense, our first episode on M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, as I said, we're doing signs next time. And in the meantime, uh, to, to quote uh, young Cole, uh, we're ready to communicate with you. And I hope the reverse is true. Please hit us up on Instagram at SSEpod or send us an email at singleservingcinema at gmail.com. And uh, in the meantime, I don't know, uh, talk to the people in your life. It'll make things better. Bruce the Willis. Bruce the Willis.